Welcome to MediaPath. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. Our MediaPath mission statement is to introduce you to wonderful content and to reintroduce you to the personalities who graced your childhood and live in your heart forever. Today, we're spending some time with Daphne Maxwell-Reed, who played Aunt Viv on The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. But first, Fritz... You come bearing news, don't you? I, I love to brag about this podcast. Sure, why not? Why not? So we would like to take a moment for a quick announcement about the wonderful things happening for Media Path on the podcast player and discovery app, Good Pods, where we recently topped several listener charts, hitting number one in the top 100 media chart, number four in the top 100 TV chart, and number five in the top 100 books chart. I think the Beatles were the last to do that to have that many hits anyway thank you so much to everybody who listens subscribes rates reviews shares and enjoys our show we love you and that's not an exaggeration all right i'm going to talk about a really cool show and i know you watched it yes please all right this is called the diplomat it's a series on netflix eight episodes i'm watching This is a political thriller starring Carrie Russell as a career diplomat who juggles her high-profile job as the new ambassador to Great Britain while navigating a turbulent marriage to a political star. It was created by Deborah Kahn, who worked on Homeland and West Wing. And she writes most of the episodes as well. Each of the eight episodes has all the political and international intrigue that you would expect from somebody whose pedigree is Homeland and West Wing. Really wonderfully written. Deborah explains that the Foreign Service is the first in and last out of every disaster in the world, and nobody knows what they really do. She also was inspired by the idea of couples who work together in the Foreign Service. They're passionate about what they do and each other, and sometimes the person you're in love with, you are also competing with on your job. That makes for some great sparks of dialogue in the show when the two are banging heads. The series carries wheelhouse, too, because she was on The Americans, that enormous spy thriller that was uh, uh, streaming for a while. In this show, she plays Kate Weiler. Her husband is Hal Weiler, played by British actor Rufus Sewell. All the British actors, and that's most of them in this series, are spectacular. A great surprise is Michael McKeon, Famous for Lenny and Squeaky on Laverne and Shirley, who plays the president of the United States. Don't judge. You need to watch this. He's gruff and just snarky enough to make him very believable in this part. And you know the show's authentic because it's been said that foreign service people around the world are binging it. Oh, wow. So I'm watching the show, Fritz, and I find myself saying out loud, is this what really happens? And I I would imagine they've got some folks on the writing staff that are familiar yeah. with what really the political happens. stuff is gets in the weeds once in a while but it seems so authentic so is lenny or squiggy our president <laughs> i don't know i don't know I, I forget which one he was but he's so good at this because he's just he's an old guy he's uh to quote don lemon past his peak and <laughs> but he's very 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 funny in his gruffness and he puts up with no bull and his brief interactions with carrie russell are really amusing i, he, I love he gets guy. right to the point yeah. yeah all right fritz well i have been watching menendez plus menudo mm-hmm. boys betrayed on peacock upon first glance i thought this was a magazine show featuring <laughs> various topics i quickly realized <laughs> to my horror that these stories are connected. Lyle and Eric Menendez appeared to be rich and titled Beverly Hills kids convicted of brutally murdering their parents, Jose and Kitty, on a summer night in 1981. 
It took two trials to get a verdict. Throughout the first trial, Eric and Lyle alleged that their father had been molesting them since they were very young children. The testimony was not allowed in the second trial, resulting in guilty verdicts and life sentences. 30 years later, Peacock presents the following thesis. Jose Menendez was not only abusing his own kids, he was also molesting the members of Menudo. The series follows the journey of former Menudo Ray Rossello, who joined the group in 1983 at the age of 13. What always troubled me about this boy band is that each member was cycled out at 16 and replaced by a new younger boy. We joked darkly about this at Premier Radio, where I wrote for music and comedy shows, because forced retirement at 16 is, by itself, abusive. I remember writing a sketch called Where Do Old Menudos Go? I had one of them opening a pinata repair shop. <laughs> but we sensed that the mistreatment of kids probably went beyond thrusting them in and out of stardom. My coworker Rob Eisenberg would reenact their manager letting a kid go with the line, Is that a pubic hair, Paco? Only funny until you know that your fear is the truth. Roy alleges that Menudo manager Edgardo Diaz molested group members and kids who spent the weekend at his house auditioning. He had set himself up with a steady flow of parents all too eager to hand him their kids, make them stars, and destroy their spirits. Interviewed from prison, Lyle and Eric distinctly remember being at many Menudo concerts with their dad, then an executive at RCA Records. The group members were often at the house, and Jose Menendez took them individually into private rooms for a chat. Roy has become a minister, and his purpose is to heal himself through helping others. He is also determined to bring Menudo manager Diaz to justice, all of which led me to an HBO doc called Menudo, Forever Young. It's a four-part miniseries which tells more of their story from the perspectives of many of the 32 former members of the group. It chronicles the cultural importance of a Puerto Rican boy band, the resulting invincibility of their manager, Diaz, and the backstage culture of neglect, mistreatment, chaos, and sexual abuse. Menendez and Menudo is on Peacock, and Menudo, Forever Young is on HBO. I'll tell you, I, I hadn't known anything about it. You told me about it yesterday, so I binged this thing last night. There are three long episodes. Two things really disturbed me. Mm-hmm. One was that um, they wouldn't allow child abuse testimony at the second trial, and you never find out why. It was allowed a, that's, the first a, that's a judge's decision, and this came after the OJ verdict. And so I think the the judge got to make those calls of what evidence was allowed in or what was pertinent to the case. And I think when when by then the entire world had seen those murder scene photographs, it was just we need to convict. These I think kids. that was a glaring omission. And 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 now and also the other thing I I didn't like was they there's no conclusion to this. This guy has uh, filed charges against the manager of Menudo, mm-hmm. who was the real pedophile. And the problem he's up against is that this guy is a major, considered a major treasure in Puerto Rico because Menudo is this great representation of Puerto Rican culture. And uh, so I, uh, you, you don't get to the end of the thing. You don't know if he actually brings him to trial. And you don't know if the Menendez boys get their day in court because of this new evidence. I'm anxious to find that out. I think we know a lot more now about what uh, childhood of abuse does to your soul, to your brain, to your reasoning, to your problem-solving uh, capabilities. They, they just felt trapped. They felt like if they ever tried to leave home, their dad would find them and kill them. Mm-hmm. They, were, they were not functioning as reasoning people. So I think that that should be taken into account. And the whole Hispanic machismo thing, it was a real shame for those little kids, too. Well, boys, 
boys of any race really yeah. it they if they ever uh, if they ever reveal it's on their own timeline yeah. and that's what we've mm-hmm. come to learn mm-hmm. about sexual abuse and and its harm all right let us now introduce our guests because it's hard we need to like make a hard pivot yeah this is what you call a tire squealing together we're turning towards fun here we go Uh, uh, all right (laughs) let us now introduce our guest (laughs) daphne maxwell reed is an actor a designer a photographic artist and an author she is best known for her iconic role as aunt viv 2.0 on the fresh prince of bel-air daphne maxwell reed continues to thrive as a creative entrepreneur and artists, dazzling us with a bold and graceful spirit and work ethic. One of the first African-American women to make the cover of Glamour magazine, she now balances acting opportunities with photography, clothing design, and her work as an education activist. We are honored to have you, Ms. Reed. Yay, Daphne. Welcome from the great state of Virginia. Thank you. Yes, here in beautiful downtown Richmond. Well, I, it looks like downtown any cabinet, but, you know, that's <laughs> like, if you're watching at home, she's in front of her beautiful cabinet. Yes. So, but we've all... I love this. Yeah. This is my fabric cabinet. I keep my my fabrics. I'm a fabriholic, so I keep my fabrics in here. Oh, nice. My, We're going to talk about your clothing design uh, expertise in a few are minutes. Are you in your new space? Because I was reading about how you were redecorating your home studio space. We may ask you at some point to open one drawer and bring out at least something beautiful (laughs) to show us. Okay, I can do that. All right, so (laughs) you are at your soul a creator. Tell us about how you first began imagining your ideas into creations. I dreamed them. I've been sewing since I was nine years old, so I've always made clothes, and I've always made all most of my clothes. And sometimes when I'm working on a project, I'll make up some outfits that I think go with the character, and they say yes or no in the uh, wardrobe department, and I get to wear my own clothes to work. I did that a lot on Simon & Simon. And uh, absolutely love the idea of taking fabric and making art with it. And that's what I consider it doing. You have had many firsts in your life. As Weezy mentioned, you were uh, the first African-American model on the front of Glamour magazine. You're also the first African-American homecoming queen when you were a student at Northwestern. You're one of the first African-American ladies playing a dominant role in American sitcoms. And you have some beautiful words about there, as Spider-Man says, with great power comes great responsibility. But you you seem to think that there is a responsibility in that because of the seeds you're planting, as you say. Well, yeah, I'm standing on on shoulders that uh, a lot of people don't know of. Um, I didn't, you know, come out of the space and just become first. I'm just living my life as it comes along. And I happen to be a first. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't something you you strive for. It just happens if the circumstances allow it. Um, I think it's a great responsibility to people who are looking at me as that icon or that first and realizing that I have to live my life with integrity so that the things that I portray um, are honorable and advance my concept of what life is on this planet. Mm-hmm. Well, it's not, it seems it feels like you embrace that responsibility very gracefully and that it, you feel honored and then you walk forward. 
and do your work. But I want to hear more about your your childhood because you uh, you were the first African American kid in fourth grade to be in advanced placement. And so obviously you were gifted and everyone in the community would recognize this girl. So tell us about your household and your community and the values that you learned as a child. I grew up in a whole household, mother, father, two brothers. I was the middle child. So, of course, I needed more attention than anybody else. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we were just a really normal family. My mother... I think was my biggest inspiration because she was one of the most non-judgmental people I have ever seen. So I grew up in a church-going family and we had people who came to visit the church. We had students, we had uh, assistant ministers who'd come and our house was where they slept and eat. And um, it was just always something going on at my house, but education was stressed all of us went to college. That was expected. It wasn't hammered into us. It wasn't um, made uncomfortable. It was just the progress of where we were expected to go. And it was a great place to grow up. New York City was incredible to grow up in, in the 40s and 50s and 60s when I was there because it had such cultural richness all over the city. And I was able to take advantage of all of the different cultural aspects that were offered in New York. And I got to see symphonies and operas and ballets and theater and music of all sorts, jazz clubs. And I just was exposed to a whole lot of things. And my parents were very open to my exposure to a lot of things. So kids back then had the run of the place too, right? Ah, yeah, we did. <laughs> you know, the uh, great place. Yeah, your your creativity has manifested itself in a lot of ways, and one of the first ways uh, is photography. You sort of got your father's gene for an artistic yeah. expression through photography. So, talk about your dad being a photographer, and then also talk about how you took the mantle and went with it when you were a child. My father was a wannabe photographer. Ah. He went to photography school I maybe a year. But what he actually was when I was growing up was a soda jerk. Hmm. He worked at uh, Whalen's Drugstore and was behind the counter making malts and sandwiches. And that was his livelihood. But he spent, I mean, everywhere we went, he had his camera. I have pictures of me from infancy all the way through high school that my father, there was always a camera around. And by the time I was maybe eight or nine years old, we got brownie cameras. Mm -hmm. And after that, we got real cameras. And I was reflecting on my life and realized that I have never been any, lived anywhere where I didn't have a camera and a sewing machine, always. Oh wow! And that and really schools to me. That really is. I as I was reading all about your life, your life has come full circle because you said you've been you've been sewing your own clothes since you were nine. You started your artistic expression as a photographer, and through your unbelievable acting and modeling career, you're full circle again, where photography and clothing design is where you are. So you've returned to your soul after all that time. 
I have. And I didn't intend to become an actress. I couldn't see in the 60s how a black woman could make a living being an actress. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something I pursued, but I had a lot of fun doing it with the group theater workshop on Saturday afternoons. They became the Negro Ensemble Company in New York. And I mean, I was just having fun. It evolved from opportunity and taking advantage of the opportunities and learning as I grew through each of the professions. So modeling leads to... Yeah, being an actress, I was not trying to be a model either. But my junior high school English teacher (laughs) turned me on to Seventeen magazine Ah. by submitting my picture for the special January issue, which is called the Real Girl Issues. And I had gotten a merit scholarship to uh, college and I was selected as one of the real girls. There was a the home, uh, the um, baton twirling champion of Iowa. There was the Betty Crocker Bake Off winner and me and probably some other folks, but those are the ones I remember. And we were flown for I from school in Chicago back to New York and feted and given (laughs) this wonderful opportunity to be in New York and go to the theater and get your hair done at a fancy place and, and take a picture. And my picture turned out to be one of the single uh, large page pictures in the magazine in January. And from that, Eileen Ford, who was head of a modeling agency Mm -hmm. in New York, saw that picture and asked me to come register with her. I shrugged. I said, okay. And Mm -hmm. I used to fly back and forth to New York at United Airlines student rate fares of Chicago (laughs) to New York round trip of $50. Uh Wow. (laughs) So I flew back and forth while I was in college and did modeling. And did you get your first acting job through your modeling, through people recognizing your beauty and asking you to come and audition? My first acting job was probably doing commercials Mm -hmm. in uh, Chicago after I graduated. And I was a mom and working in um, doing catalogs in Chicago and doing narrations and and little films like that. Um, and Robert Conrad came to town and he was doing a series called The Duke. Mm-hmm. And I auditioned and I got a role and he wrote me into the script and made me a major character. So I was in it for the entire series. And wow. that was my first start in acting on television. And then I said, <laughs> okay, I'm going to go to Hollywood. <laughs> and I dropped into Hollywood and Robert Conrad was there doing a show called A Man Called Sloan. Mm-hmm. And I called him up and said, I'm in town now. He said, oh, good. I've got a part for you for the show. Okay. And I got it's like you eight- just walked from lily pad to lily pad from these various was, points in show business. That was my life. Wow, that's fantastic. Well, I, I think life is about being prepared when opportunity presents itself. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, yes. And being professional on the job. Mm-hmm. I pay attention to what's going on around me so that I know how to enhance what everybody else is doing that has to do with me. Mm. I, mean, I understand lighting because I was paying attention to the DP when he was lighting and how to find my light and how mm. to be in the best place to make 
the best uh, film that they're trying to make. It's such a collaborative effort. And if everybody does their part and does it well, you get a good piece of work. Yes, absolutely. So tell us, what did you know about The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air when you were first offered the role? I had been on a bunch of series with my husband. We had just completed another series called Snoops. Mm. We had done Frank's Place. We had done a lot of things, and we were kind of pooped, (laughs) and we were moving to Virginia. And I got a call from my agent saying, um, we want you to audition for this a little sitcom with a um, a rapper. And I said, no. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I've been, I've had these great one-hour shows on the air and we've had great, I, a rapper? No, my uh, stepson was rapping at the time. So I was very familiar with rap when it started. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going, nah, I don't think I'm going to do that. So I didn't do it. And I went to, we moved to Virginia. I'm turning on the TV that fall and this little show comes on called The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and I'm going, what a cute show. (laughs) Now, did you, were you, uh, was Viv 2.0 on the show when it was shot on the NBC lot in Burbank? Yes. Yes, So I I worked there for 40 years uh, and, and, um, the two shows, Saved by the Bell and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, I felt like a member of the family because I watched these kids grow up in the commissary over there. And I watched Will Smith go from this wide-eyed rapper who couldn't believe he was in Hollywood to, you know, the most powerful guy in show business. Yeah. And uh, it was unbelievable. I probably saw you in the commissary too, but I, I, I was too afraid to walk up and talk to you. You were looking at the guys. I understand. <laughs> So what happened when you were offered, so after three seasons, they need to recast the role of Aunt Viv, and then what happens? I got a call Mm -hmm. to come audition for uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I said, oh, how nice, which part? And they said, "Uh, Aunt Viv. And I said, but do you already have a Aunt Viv? (laughs) And they said, we'd like you to come and audition. I said, okay. And I was on the next plane making sure that I got there. It took two and a half weeks and probably they saw 200 women. Wow. I had five auditions. And by the third audition, I got to work with James Avery Mm -hmm. and we clicked. Mm. I adored that man. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to the network. We were down to three of us, uh, three very different women. And I got the job. Was and Quincy I Jones was, in the audition? Yes, he was. That's See, that, that would be more intimidating than auditioning for the show. Because no. he was oh, executive I knew producer. Quincy. Oh, you did? <laughs> I knew okay. Quincy. Yeah. Well, I rewatched that first episode that you were on, and there's a really cute moment that you can describe where, where uh, Jazzy Jeff is on, and you've yeah. just had a baby. So <laughs> just to tell how they... <laughs> they just kind of smoothed over this uh, new actor in here as Aunt Viv. Yeah, they just kind of slid it in. Uh, Jazzy Jeff comes in. And he says, I have a present for Nikki, Mickey, Ricky. Well, he called my baby uh, all sorts of numbers, uh, names. And um, I, she, he looked at me and he said, um, you sure look different since you had that baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then and Will they breaks had a shot of Will yeah. Smith looking at the camera she- going. 
He broke the fourth wall. Will breaks the fourth wall, which I don't think was done back then. All that was said about it. That's very funny. (laughs) Just a smooth little ride in there. Well, you mentioned that you had moved to Virginia earlier, and um, I think it's worth pointing out another first that you and Tim were involved with. You started New Millennium Studios, which was the full first full service production facility in Virginia, and probably before Tyler Perry may have Wait. been, yeah, I was going to say, might have been one of the uh, the first black-owned entertainment production companies. Am I right about that? Uh, in recent times. Right. But, I mean, Oscar Micheaux had studios back in the 40s and uh, the Johnson Brothers. There were a lot of black-owned studios mm-hmm, back then. Mm-hmm. But in recent times, we were the first uh, in this era. Mm-hmm. And Tyler has been to our studio. He came to asked for some help on one of the first projects that he did. Oh, wow. cool. Wow. And I finally got to work with him about two years ago. And on what? On a show called um, A Jazz Man's Blues. Ah, uh, yeah. Right. That's still streaming, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Fantastic. That is an unbelievable film. It just gets yeah. to you and you it oh, stays so with you. Yeah. You were in that and you were also were in Harriet as well, which was a gorgeous yes. film. Oh, that was a thrill for me. Mm-hmm. And I auditioned as a local person. Uh, I had one line, supposedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then what happened? Uh, that one line grew a little bit. And uh, I got to work about eight days with those fabulous women who mm-hmm. were all about that yeah, film. I just that was so honored to so, be in that. Tell us about your role. <laughs> played one of the runaways um, that was escaping with Harriet Tubman. And uh, I was one of the ones that they hid in the church basement. Oh, yeah. And I was one of the ones who ran through the woods being chased by dogs. And we walked into the pond where she was basically walking on water. She just said, follow me. And I jumped in the water and followed her. Oh, my gosh. Wow. It was just an incredible experience. You even mentioned it's one of the most beautiful films ever shot, just the, the lush Absolutely cinematography gorgeous. and everything. I, I want to go back to your photography, uh, Daphne, because you, you uh, have a sort of a recurring theme in some of your later day photographs, which are doors. Yes. Now, can they see this at DaphneMaxwellReed.com? Can they see any of your uh, photographic work and also some of your fashion work? Yes. Um, on the second page of my uh, website, mm-hmm. uh, there are some of the photos that I have taken and that I've made into note cards and into the books that I have published. Um, there, oh, there we is. go. Fantastic. There they are. Talk about what drew you to the theme of doors. I've been always been um, attracted to the details of architecture. I studied interior design and architecture at Northwestern. Mm. And I just... I'm a real stickler for detail, and I like craftsmanship and color and texture, and doors offer that to me. And when I started taking pictures, I didn't know that I was doing so many doors until it came time for me to announce that I was a photographic artist, which you just do. You send it up to the ether and you start acting like that. (laughs) Um, And I had a gallery show and I said, oh, I have a lot of doors. Maybe I'll start with doors. Well, I had a lot of doors. So (laughs) from from around the world, right? Many countries. 
all over the world. Mm. Nothing domestic. They're all international doors. Now, what does a door have to do in order to model for you? Does it need a portfolio <laughs> or an agent? I need to walk by it. I take one <laughs> shot and that's it. That's it. I, it is lit by God. Mm -hmm. It is nose tripod. I have a handheld camera and I take one shot. And the door just has to speak to me and I'd like to translate that into what it means to you. I found out that doors are a metaphor for life. It, oh. it has to do with curiosity and passages and adventure. So that's what I preach. Study the details in your life because it makes it the rich part of your life. It's the details. Oh, I love that. That's really wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about your fashion because from what I read, you you don't want anything mass produced. You just you wear what you make and you wear what you love and then your friends say, well, how do I get that? And so it's sort of by commission, right? It is only by commission. It's only custom made. They are art projects to me. I don't want somebody walking around in something that was mass produced that has my name on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want it to be special because it's very special to me to be able to share my gift of making it with the wearer mm. and the pride that they have with wearing something that I made just for them. So that is a collaboration. Has anyone seen uh, one of your fashions and tried to coerce you into licensing it to them to allow them to mass produce it? I mean, somebody who really is stricken by some of your beautiful creativity and no, no good, huh? Haven't come across them yet. Let okay. me know. I'll send them down. <laughs> Again, go to that website, DaphneMaxwellReed.com. All right. Yeah. Are you ready to play some Fresh Prince of Bel-Air trivia? Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Number one, what is the name of Uncle Phil's law firm? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> well, then you're going to love the answer. The The law firm is Firth, Wynn, and Meyer, because executive producer Quincy Jones is a big fan of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Ah, <laughs> that's great. That's fabulous. <laughs> in the show, Will's name is William Smith. Is that his name in real life? No. What is his name? His first name is Willard. Very good. Willard Smith. What is baby Nikki's full name? I have no idea. <laughs> well, this one is good, too. Your writers had some fun. I'll Baby bet. Nikki's name is Nicholas Andrew Michael Sean Nathan Wanya Banks. Oh, that was because the uh, the brothers came and yes. sang. <laughs> That's because boys to men perform at his christening. Okay. Oh, you will know this one. Before every show recording, the cast and crew would dance to what song? Oh, dear. I can't. No, I can't remember. The name it of it. It's probably a song that we all know if we hear it, uh -huh. but we don't know the name of it. It's called Apache Jump on It by Sugar Hill Gang. Oh, that one. I did a little thing. It sounds like that's a great way to get everybody in that frame of mind, including the studio oh, audience. Boy, we had a ball getting started. It means, I mean, we had instruments and we were banging away behind the scenes and dancing nobody saw us <laughs> until they introduced us one by one and uh, then the show started it was fun 
You had some great writers come out of there. Larry Wilmore is a friend of mine, and he's such a talented man. Yes. Yes, he's done very well. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very and you were able to observe the trajectory of, of Will Smith launching into kind of like the stratosphere. Like, what, what did you see as, the, you know, the the person, just the raw person, you know, before all of that was about to hit? I thought that he was the most professional hmm. and business-minded young man that I had seen in a long time hmm. because he brought 150% to rehearsal. And he also was very keenly aware of the next steps in his um, growth. And he was on it. He has a crew of guys who have grown up with him. And they are each very focused on their part of making things happen. And they have done a bang-up job. And he's he's grown into a wonderful young man. I'm very proud of him. I feel like his really aunt, his real aunt. Um, he is kind and loyal, and he's a really a good good guy. Mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm very proud of the person that he is. Mm -hmm. Now, after you saw what happened at the Oscars, did he get a call from you? Oh yes, he did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll let that lay right there. Okay. <laughs> Keeping in mind that you consider yourself his aunt, so I can imagine how that conversation went. Yeah. Good for you. I'm glad he has you. Well, one of the one of the uh, inspirational aspects of your career is that you're an education activist. You do work at Virginia State University, which is a renowned HBCU, historically black college university. H how are you involved with the university? I was on the board for uh, two terms, and then I did a lot of their outreach videos, um, what was going on in the school and the successes, and we would do them for television production. And um, just an ambassador wherever I can mm -hmm. to uh, that school and a lot of other ones, a lot of HBCUs. I have about six honorary degrees from HBCUs, because we like to <clears throat> promote them mm -hmm. and get, keep them going. They're valuable to the community, and uh, I think they ought to get a lot more support than they've been able to get. Yes, and I, I, uh, uh, I, I think people like uh, Kamala Harris have raised the awareness of the importance of HBCUs and um, and wonderful and people Jeff like Bezos' that. wife or ex-wife donated a lot of money to HBCUs yes. because she mm -hmm. believes in it too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So do you do any teaching? Do you do any, any uh, online instructing on any of your, with any of your gifts? No, 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 no. <laughs> I uh, mentor a lot of young people um, who want to bloom, as I say. Um, I loved taking young people who have a talent and don't realize that they have the talent. Mm -hmm. I've got one who's an artist and she has bloomed beautifully as an artist. I have one who wanted to, who was a lawyer who wanted to go into business for herself and she has bloomed with my encouragement and my fortitude in getting her to believe in herself. And I do a lot of that kind of mentoring. 
Would you like to do a little fashion sample roulette? Open a drawer maybe and show us something and then tell us where you found it? All righty, let's see here. Oh, I just came back from Africa. Did you? Ooh, let's see it. I have some fabrics I bought in Africa. I've been looking for a dashiki, so okay. let's see what you have in there. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're about to play fabric sample roulette with Daphne. Fabric sample roulette. Yes. Okay. This is just simple. Ooh. That's, nice, that's quite beautiful. The nice um, wax thingy now you just buy oh, the oh. buy the samples do you have something in mind for them before you purchase them or just whatever usually. evolves evolves usually that's beautiful this is a coat waiting to happen oh that's <laughs> going to be a coat that's okay. going to be gorgeous wow mm-hmm. and this i'm really happy with it is original antique kenti cloth it's hand woven wow and hand stitched and i found it at in africa so are you like are you nice piece of this? Are hmm. you finding these these uh, these fabrics at uh, merchants, or are you actually meeting the people who who create them? I found this one with the people who create them. Tell me about that. I dye um, and indigo, and I was learning all about indigo dye, and this was a tie dye piece, and I loved it. So that's going to be something. I don't know what. Indigo was a huge. Oh, that's tie-dye. From Virginia down through the Carolinas, indigo pre-Civil War was one of the biggest crops down there. It was even bigger than cotton for some of the states down there because it was so valuable because of this rich hue that they couldn't find anywhere else. Right. And I found out that it came from the leaf of a plant. I can't remember, a papyrus plant or some kind of plant. And they just boil it, and it becomes this dark indigo. Mm -hmm. And they just dip it, and they seal it with um, kind of some kind of a stay that keeps it from fading right away. On your travels, do do, do you uh, there's a, there there this I don't know what uh, there's a name for it, and I can't think of it right now. Like micro economies, where you would go to Africa, and there would be small businesses, maybe uh, owned and yes. operated by a woman, and yes. uh, it sort of is it's become the lifeblood of many of these countries. These small businesses. Right. Have you found that in your travels? I didn't get to see that while I was on this excursion, but we did uh, go to art studios and I saw weavers and I saw uh, sculptors and I saw woodworkers and Mm. we bought things from potters and all the things that you can see people doing with their hands. That's what's of value to me is the craftsmanship Mm -hmm. and we did a lot of finding of that. A lot of, we went to Kahindi Wiley studio. I adore the paintings that he does and the ways that he helps other artists bud and bloom. And um, we went to some other studios where we saw work from various artists. And that's the, I don't want anything that's, quickly made mm-hmm. I mean, because most of it comes out of China anyway and I don't appreciate that mm-hmm. you seem really positive I'm going to ask you a question I, I'm not implying a political answer here I'm just saying in general terms are, are you feeling positive about the planet we're on now even with the, the, this 
uh, what I hope is momentary darkness. Do you do, have you got good feelings about where we're going, or if you if you don't have good feelings, do you think we can recover from it? Whatever we're doing now, the pendulum has swung too far in one direction. Amen. It will swing back, and there will be a leveling out of angst, mm-hmm. <laughs> and life is cyclical. Mm-hmm. It will come back around. We can't destroy the earth because the earth will destroy. We'll be long gone before we can destroy Mm -hmm. the earth. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we really need to find humanity. We've kind of stuck it somewhere and we need to find it and start using it. I am very happy with the young people who are coming up. I have a granddaughter who's in college right now and I appreciate that they want things differently. And I said, it's up to you to make them different. Exactly. Um, my, my daughter. Giving uh, you the baton. My, my youngest child just graduated from college two weekends ago. And whenever I was feeling doubt about society in general, I would just talk to her. You know, all the the way they're marginalizing LGBTQ people, uh, uh, people are not putting up with that. No, they say, what is everybody making? They're insulted by that. And I thought, okay, well, there's hope. There's hope for society. Uh, I I look at Florida and I say, man, I'm I'm so um, disgusted with it. I think the pendulum the pendulum is starting to decapitate people on its way to its extreme. Uh, But uh, I don't know what we're doing. But anyway, I'm going to take your positivity. And I mean, you you look for the beauty in the earth. And I think that's all we can do. That's it. It's all we can do and vote. Of Make course. sure you vote for somebody who has what you need in mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's it's so important too that a lot of times kids will roll their eyes and say, "Oh, you, oh, it's up to us. You you destroyed." Things. Yeah, we and, messed and, it up, and they Ooh, get mm-hmm. and they get angry, and then you can say, "Well, are you registered?" Because it, you know, if we say that to every young person as the as the election gets closer, we just say, "As you're checking out your groceries, like, are you registered?" Because you would be surprised how many of them are not. I know. They're indignant, but, but they're surprised not. <laughs> at how much they don't know. Yep. And it's up to us to tell them. Absolutely. It's time for the older generation to stop wanting to have it all and to mentor these young people mm-hmm. into what they need. 100%. If, you, if you're if you talking to a young person and you say, you know, E. Jean Carroll, and they're like, who's that? Don't roll your eyes. Don't sit. Don't lecture. Tell them and just say, I what I want for you is find a podcast and listen to 15 minutes of news every day. You you can spend the rest of your, you know, media consumption on something that you love, but you (laughs) need to. Yeah. But you need to at least know the headlines. Right. And I I quiz my granddaughter all the time. That's wonderful. How's she doing? That's a gift. I say, do you know what's going on here? Mm -hmm. Know what's happening? She says, yes. And this is it. I said, now, what do you think about that? Mm. We have have many discussions. You're giving her a gift. That's wonderful. I I worry that um, kids who might otherwise be engaged in civics or the political process are so turned off by all the vitriol and the snarkiness and where we are, I'm, I'm hoping we can get past that so kids are reengaged. Yeah, well, in Tennessee, they didn't put up with it and they spoke that up. That was fantastic. Wow. And I think two, those two gentlemen are going to be 
social heroes. Absolutely. They, they were like young Martin Luther Kings in their speech making. They were really, really good, weren't they? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they have to say, no, we're mm -hmm. not putting up with this. Mm -hmm. This doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And yes, they'll be chastised. They'll be, but they'll be back and, and don't stop talking. And it was another really good example of when the spotlight shines on you, be ready. Those two men were ready. They were ready. They were quite ready. The white hot media was on them for about two weeks. It was crazy. Yep. Yep. What would you recommend to young people, although it's probably different now than it was when you were starting, you went through New York. What, what recommendation would you have to a young person? And I, I would say, uh, if you'll permit me, a young African-American person, because there are different constraints and there are different uh, boxes that they have to fight their way out of to get help in the entertainment business. Uh, what would you say to them in what to keep in mind in the way of being positive and how to market yourself? And do you, do you have some, um, some... Well, they're marketing themselves very differently than when we did it. Mm -hmm. But what I told Will when I met him and what I tell any young person who wants to go into this business, number one, have something that you love to do that will feed you because being an actor means you're waiting to be chosen. Mm -hmm. So if you want to do something else in this business, go do it on a local level and find out what it is and find your passion. Find out which avenue you want to travel down. Mm -hmm. And then never let the successes go to your head and never let the failures go to your heart. Mm. Get up and keep going. I love that. Now, you're, you're part of a legacy show. And there's a bunch of people like you who were on shows that people grew up with. And you find out this is a part of your life forever. These folks are a part of my life forever because we have reunions and now the fans have found us all online and we're like, hey, can you guys all come in? And so how, how does that feel that, that people want to stay connected? We're on our third generation of people watching The Fresh Prince. Yeah. Which I think is just incredible. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a hoot. I think it's it's lovely when I'm recognized and I'm recognized more by my voice than by my face because mm -hmm. I don't wear makeup and hair and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And really, <laughs> I'm, I'm chill. Yeah, same. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, I could be in a store and I'm talking to somebody and they'll say, you sound like the lady on the Fresh Prince. And Stop I, yeah. it. Really? Which is really a, a, a nice thing to, to see. That's so cute. Oh, my God. Do you ever do those fan meet and greets and those things where people travel? Oh, sure. Around? I do mm -hmm. Comic-Cons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fun. Fun stuff. Mm -hmm. Fun stuff. And you've had reunions, and it's it's almost like that feeling of connection where, you know, most things that you, as an actor, you say, you know, goodbye at rap, and then that that's kind of it. But on folks that have been on these legacy shows are finding that, they never have to really say, yeah, I'll see you and later. And I had the privilege of being on Bel Air for about three or four episodes. And I had a ball. What I was kind of <laughs> humbled by mm -hmm. was the reception that I got from the young people who are playing our characters. Mm -hmm. When 
I show up. So tell us a little bit about the reboot, because maybe everyone hasn't sampled it just yet. It is a one-hour drama concept of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. It has the same characters, but you get to see a 360-degree version of them rather than we walk in, say, a punchline and leave. Hmm. Um, You get to dive into their their lives and the things that go on behind what the action is in the sitcom. Mm. There's always a story for the sitcom and everybody's serving that story. Mm. But this one, there are stories everywhere. Each character has their own story and path. And it's just exciting to watch. It is so exciting to watch. And they are so good. They're such good actors. And such wonderful people. So I've I've really had a joy working with them. And and who did you play? I played a woman who um, gave Aunt Viv 3.0, as I call her, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a fellowship uh, for her art. Oh, and I ride her like a pony, <laughs> and, awesome. and I fight with her, and she does things that I don't want her to do. And I bitch and I moan, and uh, then she finally puts me in my place. Excellent. Excellent. And so where is that streaming? That's on Peacock. 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 All right. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Yeah, and you were talking about The Diplomat earlier. Yeah, we were. I love that Isn't show. That's that a great what I've been doing this past week. I right? know. I don't know how they could stay married and probably won't, but, man, it's fun to watch that show. But I think they're getting closer. Yeah, they really are. Yeah, I think so. I think I think that's what I am. And I was blown away to find out that guy Sewell or Sewell or whatever, is British. I could not believe he, he's one of you know, the Brits have this great talent of being able to bury their British accent. He sounds more American than I do. And I found out he's a Brit. And he's on he's on all these PBS things at night. I'm never surprised anymore if you watch someone being interviewed and they have a British or Australian accent because those, those are our best American actors at present. <laughs> Without question. And it, to be. <laughs> and it's not like they send for us when they need someone with a British accent. You know? Oh yeah, they send for Hugh Jackman and they... <laughs> right? Australians. Yeah, Australians. Yes. You have a very inspirational quote and I think you live by this and that is that you have to be in control of your essence, which is quite beautiful. What does that mean? Um, what you are portraying in your life, the person who you are, you need to not be swayed by outside noise. Hmm. Your conviction is your conviction, and you stand by it, and you live by it, and know that you want your children to be proud of what you did. But let's say you were not raised by people with convictions that you agree with. How do you create your own convictions if you're, say, 20 or 25 and you're just not, you know, you want to be accepted and you're just not sure of what your stance is? You find your tribe. Mm-hmm. Find your your friends who can help you bloom with information, with challenges, with aspiration that you may not have readily available. And you hang out with people of like mind. And I also think that being deliberate about what you consume 
And by that, I mean, if you're not a reader, listen to books on tape and choose them. Don't just be at the mercy of whatever an algorithm throws at you next. Like, be deliberate about what you choose to consume. Right. And start with some of the classics. Yeah. Most. There's, yep. there's just so much depth of character mm -hmm. in the classics. Do you have Don't any... do the Cliff's Notes. Right, right, right. <laughs> do you have any favorite books that you recommend? Oh, too many? All the classics. Too many. Too yeah. many. I mean, it was the best of times. It was the worst. Oh, there we of go. <laughs> oh, my God. There we go. Such yeah. character development. And I tell actors, who people who want to be actors, that they should be reading classic literature because that's where you can see character development. Mm. Did you ever do Shakespeare? Like Shakespeare in the Park? Oh, God, no. No, no, no. I don't like you to have do such a beautiful either. voice. I think Shakespeare would sound so beautiful coming out of your throat. If I knew what he was talking about. Oh, that's not important. But just delivering <laughs> it well is, is the important thing. No, there are some people who really know what he's I talking know, that's about. Crazy, isn't I, it? No. And I also don't do live theater because I don't like to repeat the same thing over and over mm -hmm. again. I guess. It's, it's annoying to me. All right. Well, is there anything that you're working on right now that you would like to share with us or like any uh, online content that you'd like to, us to visit? Go to DaphneMaxwellReed.com. Yeah. And watch Harriet, watch um, Jazzman's Blues. And I'm in a, a film that my husband just directed called Call Me Now. Oh, and it's about, about Miss Cleo. Do you remember her yeah. from TV? Oh, my back God. You made a Miss Cleo movie? Yes. Wow. And she was quite, quite a story. It was wonderfully done. And um, that's coming out sometime soon. But um, there's a writer's strike. Ain't nobody going to work oh, soon. Oh, Lord, I feel so bad about that. <laughs> Do you have any predictions about what how this could resolve? It seems like it's going to go a long time from what you hear on the street. Oh, boy. Yes, it seems like it's going to go on. And then there'll be the SAG and after strike. And then there'll be the... Uh, director strike, and then they were, you know, <laughs> oh it's it's the problem of streaming sure. and and getting compensation for Absolutely. that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, it started with cable. The, the compensation has been dumbed down as time went along. Yeah, really and it has been made common that you can just lift something and play it, mm -hmm. and oh, it just irks me when mm -hmm. it. I remember when they started doing that with music, and they put a kibosh on that really mm -hmm. quickly. Mm -hmm. But they're still, people don't believe in copyrights anymore. They don't pay any attention mm -hmm. to the rights holders. Mm -hmm. And it's sad. Residuals it, are really bad in the streaming arena. So it, it it's going to come to a head because this, this is ridiculous. It, people are making money off of things that we did before that we aren't being compensated for. Yeah. Well, do you feel like the Writers Guild has good representation right now in these talks? I have no idea. Yeah. I'm, I'm not part of the Writers Guild. Mm -hmm. Is Tim a member of the Writers Guild? I think he, he, he I'm sure he is, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Writers, directors, and producers, yeah, yeah. Sure. Well, let's hope for good things for those who Yeah, do. because this community around here, the San Fernando Valley, and all these little tiny businesses that uh, are, are going to get tagged, the longer it goes, the more it's... Yes. Impactful. It definitely affects yeah. everyone. Well, we want to say hello from our publicist, Lori DeWall, because she asked, <laughs> do we love her so much? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, she told you that 
we were her clients back in the 80s as no, well. No, she told us all about you. Oh, she's the, a, and she's the only reason we've just chosen to accept you on our show. No, she's, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. No, she speaks glowingly of you. Oh, she's so wonderful. Yeah, she does a great job. She's tireless. Well, what a pleasure, uh, Daphne. What, what a pleasure. And for me as well. Congratulations on your wonderful career and give our best to your husband. I didn't get to ask you how it is to work with your husband, like on WKRP. Does that work? Depends on which day it is. The dreamboat. But he he can be hankty too, so. Well, you guys are like the acting version of the diplomat. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah. Like, We're more like Ossie Davis and Ruby Dee. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I love them so much. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. All right. Here come our closing credits. Thank you so much for joining us. We would love to continue this conversation with you on Instagram and Twitter. We are at Media Path Pod. And on Facebook, where our show page is Media Path Podcast. And our Facebook group is Media Path with Fritz and Wheezy Podcast Community. You can find full video podcast episodes loaded with bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. And you can write to us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, please give us a nice rating in Apple Podcasts and talk about us on social media if you would be so kind. You can sign up for our saucy rag of a newsletter at mediapathpodcast.com. And we want to thank our wonderful guest, Daphne Maxwell-Reed. Our team includes Dina Friedman, John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, Mason Brown, Lori DeWall, Garrett Arch, Nick Broussard, and you. Our theme music is by me and John Maddox. I'm Louise Palenker, here with Fritz Coleman and Daphne Maxwell-Reed. Be well and wise, and we will see you along the media path. Okay, don't move, just don't.